Hello and welcome to PathPod. This is our next episode of IHC Talk. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and I'm joined again by my chromogen siblings, Sonam Lugavi of MD Anderson Cancer Center, and Andrew Belizzi of University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Uh, you can find all of us on Twitter. I'm at MArnold underscore PedPath. Dr. Lugavi is on Twitter at Sonam Lugavi, and Dr. Belizzi is on Twitter at IHC underscore Guy. Welcome, folks. Thank you. It's great to see everybody. It's it's you know it's it's been a minute and and I I've, I've missed you guys. So we we've, we've got some special guests with us today. We have Dr. Anya Roden of the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and Dr. Frank Ingram of Presbyterian Hospital in Charlotte, North Carolina. Welcome. Hi. Hi, I'm excited to be here. Dr. Roden is on Twitter at ANJA Roden MD and Dr. Ingram is on Twitter at Chucktown Doc. Our guest today has some expertise in laboratory medical directorship and managing IHC test menus. So we wanted to talk today about a range of topics from some really basic immunohistochemistry 101 to how do we pick tests to bring up? How do we validate them? How do we maintain our test menus? And kind of what's the latest things that we've been working on? When we have a new guest on PathPod, we'd like to hear a little bit about their story of how they got into medicine and pathology. I find it personally interesting, and I think it's also interesting to the residents and medical students that listen. Anya, tell us a little bit about how you got into medicine and how you ended up in pathology. Well, we only have an hour left, right? <laughs> you really want to hear it? <laughs> so, well, my story starts in Germany. And after medical school, actually, I went into surgery. I did five years of residency in general oh. surgery. And then through all kinds of actual incidents and so on, I met my husband, who is also German, but he is here in the United States and he wanted to stay for just two more years. And so I said, well, I will come for, for two years for research. And I did research at that time in the immunology lab. And this is when we actually decided to stay here. I really liked the work, the research work. Funding was always a problem. And that's what kind of led me away from pure research. And at the time, I knew I didn't want to go back to the surgery, although I always liked it. But what I liked in surgery was the close relationship with pathologies that we had, like the, the intraoperative consultations, the frozen section lab, what they had. And I also liked how they went over the autopsies of our patients afterwards. So I really liked pathology and that's why I went back into pathology, realizing I had to do the residency and then fellowship again. And originally I wanted to go into heme pass, and, but they offered me a position in AP. And I thought, well, how can we, how can we combine that? So my interest was in mediastinal lesions, specifically the cymoma, because then you kind of can... Uh, have heme pass and AP together, and here we are in pathology. Awesome. That was the short story. Well, Frank, welcome back to PathPod. I know we've had you on before, so we will make you give your whole life story again. Great to see you. Hi, I'm happy to be here again with you. Anya, how long have you been the director of the, the immunohistochemistry lab at the Mayo Clinic? And Frank, how, how recently have you taken over the directorship at your lab? So I started at Mayo as a consultant in 2010, and it was actually probably one or two years later that they asked me if I could join the, at that time, team already of two medical directors of the IHC lab, and so I would be the third person. And yeah, I happily joined, so I'm lab director about eight years now. Wow, that's fantastic. Who were your co co-laboratory directors when you started? So when I started was Ahmed Dogen and Karen Reck. And it's still Karen Reck and Ahmed Dogen left to New York and we have now Ellen McPhail. But Ellen McPhail basically took over the mass spec, which was part of our IHC lab, but only because Ahmed Dogen had the vision that we should have a mass spec because of the amyloid subtyping. So he poured the mass spec into the IHC lab which now kind of gets more separated. So we are basically two lab directors for the IHC lab now. Did you have any background in immunohistochemistry when you, when you took it on or you took it on just having like, like 
most of most of us looking at immunohistochemistry <laughs> in the conduct of your you know clinical duties every day or in or in the conduct of research so actually i did a few years of research in a immunology lab and there i did my own immunostains by hand and so that's all what i have as background do you have any i did it myself any work in the office in the office yeah if you if I if I ever was lucky enough to be able to do my own immunohistochemistry, I'd show it off. You know, it's like your portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, not anymore. But you know, I find this fascinating how how people assume these uh, roles, and especially like the bigger bigger medical centers. When I first started my residency. I was like, how, you know, how is it that this person is the director of this, you know, or this person is the director of this lab? And I've come to learn that a lot of these things, you know, happen because that person has an interest in, you know, in that subject or is, you know, good at it. Uh, or sometimes they're, you know, it's just that you need someone to take that thing on. And then there's this one brave soul that says, okay, I don't know how to do this, but I think I can learn how to do it on the job. Right. So, I mean, I, I think it's fantastic. And I always look for these kinds of opportunities because I think, at least I find for myself, that I learn best under pressure. So, you know, it, it's not such a bad thing. Sometimes, yeah, they tell you this opportunity is available. You know, why don't you just take it, run with it and just learn how to do it? You know, um, it's a time I, I, uh, I like that you bring it up at that time. I was really excited about that opportunity. I would have never thought said I would be even appropriate for an IHC lab director. And so I, I happily took on that role and I never, I, I always thought that was a great decision to do. And I don't want to miss it. Good so for I you. I never asked someone else to, to actually replace me. You know how, <laughs> no. well, lab directorships, they rotate. At least at our institution, they are thinking about whether they should rotate or not. And I honestly, I'm afraid eventually they would ask me, but I really would like to stay on because it's so much fun. It's so interesting and you can bring in your own ideas and ideas about which stains should be run and why do we actually run these stains and so on. Yeah. So I, I kind of feel I can bring in a lot of things. Anya, if they ever make you rotate off, you're welcome to join me at Iowa. I could use oh thank you co-director or I'm happy to I'm happy to be your associate director you could be the you could be the director no 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 it would be the other way around but that would yeah Frank tell us a little bit about how you got into laboratory medical directorship and tell us about what your role is all right well I kind of I'm in a community pathology group in Charlotte North Carolina there's 10 pathologists in my group we are a hospital system that generates between 40 and 45,000 surgical accessions a year. So it's a pretty, pretty big system. Um, and uh, we have a pretty robust histology and IHC lab in-house and with about 75 or 80 markers that we have orderable in our laboratory. And the way that I became the director, it was, it's actually been, it's been over a year now. It, probably approaching a couple years, was the old guy that did it retired. And they needed a guy. And I was the guy. And, and I said yes when I was asked if I would do it. And for the past year or so, we've just been kind of clicking along. And I've been reviewing lot to lots when we change lots on IHC stains. And I've been selecting new control material when the old control block gets cut all the way through. And I haven't been really having to do a great deal of, of real directing of the IHC lab as, as director of it. But here recently, we finally got approval from our hospital system to bring on some new immunostains. And I was, it's time for me to start earning my money. And, and we got approval to bring on some stains that are new for us, but probably aren't new for a lot of you, but, but markers that are real workhorses for working up tumors of unknown primaries. We just recently validated GATA-3 and PAX-8 and SOX-10 and ERG in our lab. And Andrew knows that we did this because when I was bringing them up, the first thing I did was DM Andrew on Twitter and ask him about clones and advice on, on how to do this and was very appreciative of that help. I think that this would be a, this would be a, a good way to talk about 
the basics of immunohistochemistry because these are these are four workhorses. So we could talk about the steps for me are selection, optimization, validation, and, and so you know selection is you decide that that this is a marker that 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 you need for your lab, and then maybe hand in hand with that is you need a primary antibody, you need a reagent. And so maybe Frank could walk us through how he ended up picking the clones that he picked. Optimization is, you know, you get the primary antibody in your lab and it's like Christmas day. And, and then after you figured out your recipe, then you got to do the bookkeeping. So the validation and I'd like to hear everybody's experience. It's so interesting to me that Frank said that after having been lab director for a year or so, he finally got the approval from the hospital to be able to bring up these four antibodies for the pathology group or the hospital system. I'm not sure how your your relationship is, but any of these 88342s that you're doing not on, on hospitalized patients, but on, on, you know, biopsies in the outpatient setting, you're just going to be generating incredibly justifiable revenue. I can definitely uh, tell you how frustrating it is to have to justify bringing a, a new instrument or a new test into a, into a laboratory when, you know, as, as medical directors of the lab, we're not the only ones that are that are involved in those decisions. We have to go in front of hospital committees and make a business case for, for just an IHC stain. And that, I agree, that's incredibly frustrating. But, but putting that aside, we finally got them to say yes and we brought them on. I am excited about this after having gone through this process with these four stains. I, as you know from our interactions on Twitter, I asked you about clones and the clones that you recommended we're pretty much all available on the platforms that we have in our lab. We've got all Ventana instrumentations. We've got a benchmark and an ultra in our lab. And at your recommendation, I went to the Nordic QC website to look up kind of the recipes for bringing these stains on and, and optimized them using those instructions. And these four were remarkably easy to bring up. I optimized the tissues really quickly and then Finding 10 positives and 10 negatives for all these went really fast. Even finding cell block material so that we, that we had those tests validated by using, using cytology material as well. Right, uh, an advanced user. The rate limiting step for us was that our instruments are always full. Because our laboratory is so busy, it's hard to find space to do anything besides the service work. On the, on the instruments. And so being, finding time to put the validation material on the instruments and finding texts that weren't going to be getting overtime by staying late to do it, kind of just those kind of logistics type problems were, were really the things that slowed us down the most. But even with those problems, it only took a couple weeks. To, I mean, I just signed the paperwork for the validation for SOX 10 and ERG yesterday. And everything looks great, and the pathologists are happy. As you all know, these are big workhorses for the the, the new liver mets and the new uh, bone mets that turn up in our patients frequently. And so we're all happy here, and I'm excited to fight for more reagents, to fight for more stains to bring <laughs> into the lab. Frank, maybe you could you could tell us why you wanted these four antibodies, uh, how you were going to use them diagnostically well, in your lab. Well, I mean, as, as I'm sure as all of you know that, that these are, are kind of state-of-the-art immunohistochemical markers for working up tumors of unknown primary, poorly differentiated tumors of unknown primary. And, and they were stains that we were sending out quite a bit. I mean, there's 10 pathologists in my group, and I know that I myself was, was sending out for at least one of these stains at least once a week. And so times 10 pathologists, that's, that turns into quite a quite a high volume send out tests and quite a high number of cases that are getting delayed for a few days for sign out because you're waiting on these results. And so that, that is really what drove, what drove us to, to select these as the first new markers we'd like to bring in was just the, 
the volume of use. And so got a three for diagnosis of breast cancer and urothelial cancer predominantly, I imagine, although it has other applications, I use it for perigangliomma pheochromocytoma, Paxate, or what's that, Anya? Mesothelioma. Oh, yeah, that's great, yeah. Mesothelioma versus lung adenocarcinoma. In your experience, how often is GATA3 positive in mesothelioma? Half the time or more? You know, I usually use it only for the sarcomatoid mesos, where it really helps me. And there it has to, it's positive in quite a few cases, but in our experience, it really has to be diffusely positive to be helpful. So focal positivity doesn't really count. And uh, I can't give you a percentages, but it has helped me quite a few times. Yeah. Uh, PAX-8 is for uh, Mullerian tumors, kidney tumors, and thyroid tumors. Uh, SOX-10 is for melanocytic differentiation and nerve sheath, also positive in tumors with myoepithelial differentiation, including triple negative breast cancer, actually often positive in triple negative breast cancer in instances in which GATA3 is weak to negative. Totally agree with Anya that if GATA3 is rare cells weak, that it has absolutely no localizing ability. And then ERG uh, is the best marker of vascular endothelial differentiation. There are a bunch of other really good ones like CD31 and CD34, but ERG is, uh, I love transcription factors. That's really, it's really clean. It's really easy to read. Also positive in Ewing sarcomas with EWS R1 ERG translocations. And I know there's some AMLs that have ERG fusions as well, and those can be ERG positive. And then there's also, I think, sarcomas are positive, but it depends on whether you're, it depends on the clone. It depends on whether it's to the carboxy or amino terminus, but I'd have to look that up. There's some it's great that you mentioned the positive also, I think. Yeah, I think there's fusion, fusion-containing prostate cancers. That's right. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I think... Um, I, actually, I do use it in that diagnostic setting sometimes. The thing that I like about several of the markers you just mentioned is that they're nuclear. I think nuclear markers are much cleaner and easier to interpret than cytoplasmic markers. What yeah, I wanted, just wanted to add uh, for the PAX-8. I mean, interesting that you brought up the clone in regards to ERG. For PAX-8, it's pretty much similar if you have a monoclonal PAX-8 or the polyclonal PAX-8. And people get confused about it specifically in the cymic lesions because they are supposed to be PAX-8 positive, but they are really only positive with the polyclonal PAX-8. And if you have a monoclonal PAX-8, as we have, we can't even use it for that application. So we really have to know which which clone we have in the lab. And sometimes people don't realize that. You went before the hospital committee, I guess, and you made a compelling argument and they they said yes. Do you think that having made that argument, you could make the argument again and maybe have less resistance to bringing up more stains in the, in the future? Or did they just have their guard down that day? You know, that's to be determined. It took quite a, a bit of time for them to approve these four. And I think that a lot of hospital administrators look at the laboratory as a cost center and not a profit center when we really do generate a lot of revenue for the hospital, but we're not patient facing. And so I don't think that those business types kind of see us that way, but, but we really are. I think we'll just, we'll try it again next time and see how it goes. Frank, before you brought these stains up, what were you doing? Were you sending out for these stains? We were, we were sending them out to, to one of the large reference laboratories and, and, it used to be that you, you had to send them out and, and then they sent you the slides back to, to interpret. I mean, I guess some places will interpret yeah. them for you, but if I'm going to be using a stain for diagnosis, I want to look at that slide. But um, you know, in my mind, if I was a hospital administrator, I would look at that, you know, unfavorably because when you're sending something out, basically the, the receiving institution is benefiting from the technical charges, right? They're charging for the, for the stain. Maybe if you're interpreting the stains yourself, you get the very minimal professional charge. Um, and, you know, it, it increases the turnaround time too, probably. 
So it doesn't even make sense, even if you look at it from a financial point of view. Send out uh, costs are a big driver of selecting what we bring in-house. That's certainly true at my institution. We're very lucky that all the decision-making about things to bring on board is internal to pathology. And if we send something out four or five times a year, that for us really meets the threshold of cost and turnaround time benefits that we try and bring that in. So we have a lot of flexibility in that regard. Bringing up a new immunohistochemistry, the, pr- the principal cost is the cost of a vial of primary antibody. And the cost of a vial of primary antibody is $300. It varies from stain to stain. It can vary considerably. Uh, some FDA approved kits, like if you wanted to buy a kit of the Syntec for P16 or uh, PD, PDL1 kit, those might be a couple thousand, maybe $2,000. But it costs the primary antibody, you know, your GATA 3 and PAX 8 and SOX 10 and ERG were probably $300. The technical and professional charges that we generate for immunohistochemistry are, are around $400. The Medicare reimbursement for the immunohistochemistry is $100. So to justify doing an IHC, if you do it three times a year, it's kind of Michael's. If you do it three times, it, it literally pays for itself and, and then some. Anya, how does Mayo Clinic select things that they're going to bring on the menu? I'm sure you guys have a massive menu to serve the number of clients that send you things. Well, I was just thinking the whole time uh, Frank was speaking how different systems really are. So for us, there is a selection process too, but it's not the administrator. It's, it's a committee. Everything here is, is through committees. And so basically, every pathologist could come up with a stain he or she likes and wants to bring on. And that has to go through the working group head. The working group head first has to approve that the stain makes sense and that the working group, like the thoracic working group, really needs it. If set stamps come on, comes on the paperwork, then it goes to uh, another committee who decides what are the priorities. So then all the, the stains that are proposed go through a priority list and get scored, and then the highest score gets the next spot. And this is how we decide which stains will be put on. And then who takes care of these stains? Well, the lab directors will guide the process, but we also are quite dependent on our colleagues who actually propose the stains because they need to come up with the positive and negative controls, specifically if these are like esoteric stains and we don't have that many positive controls. They need to actually do searches for us and uh, have to provide us with uh, tissue blocks. And that sometimes is actually the limiting factor. I mean, we are all busy. And if the proponent isn't that interested in moving it forward, it might take a long time to develop that state. Or maybe it just takes a few weeks. Anya, I'm very (laughs) hands-on. You should take a picture of Andrew with that tray of his. These are... These are my positive and negative controls. I function as the subspecialty working groups recommending the stains, and I prioritize the stains. I mean, this is me imploring people to take an active role. It's not never, but it's very uncommon that one of my colleagues comes to me and says, hey, we really need X. Because usually if there's something on the horizon, I'm already thinking about it. One of the huge limitations, and Frank, you'll, you'll get into this as you bring up maybe more esoteric stains, is finding material uh, for the validation is often a, a, a huge rate-limiting step. We dove into mm-hmm. that, that cost stuff a little bit, Andrew, when we were talking about these with, uh, with the hospital. There was some concern about reagents expiring on the shelf and if you didn't use it all and and you were disposing of reagents and we kind of got into that about how you really only need to use the vial three or four times to pay for the vial and 
that's a, actually a question that I had for uh, the experts was, what are your thoughts about expiration dates on IHC reagents? If your control material's working, can you justify going ahead and continuing to use a vial that is out of date? No. So I'm the, you know, I'm the chair of the CAFCA Immunohistochemistry Committee. And because I'm very thorough, when I, when I assumed that role, I contacted the archivist at the College of the American Pathologist, and he shared with me the minutes, the minutes of every committee meeting ever. And the committee was formed in 1986. And I spent a week reading all the minutes and annotating them. And so this question has been asked in the history of the committee, because the committee membership turns over. So like every 10 years, somebody gets a, you know, gets a bug that this is a good idea. The CAP Immunohistochemistry Committee, when they were called the Cell Markers Committee, they actually published a paper about this and showed that expired primaries worked absolutely fine for immunohistochemistry. There'd been, there was a publication out of Iowa a couple of years before I came here that showed the same, even though my menu is fairly expansive. There are very few IHC on my test menu where we expire and have to toss and get new. Not none, but almost none. What do I do when the reagents are expired? I use them for research or I throw them away, unfortunately. And we've talked about bringing it up and it's up to CMS. And so in, the, in this history of the committee that this issue has come up multiple times, it elevated to CMS on more than one occasion. Every time they deferred adjudicating the issue. So sorry, Frank. That's all right. It won't, it, it won't be an issue with these four immunostains, but other things on my wish list that, that we'd love to have in-house but might not use quite as often like STAP6 and TL3 and MUC4, those kind of things. But again, you've got the argument that if you, if you just use it three times before it expires, then mm-hmm. it's paid for. The shelf life also comes up uh, when a stain gets discontinued. And sometimes set discontinued stains or stains on back order and they're on back order for a long time. And then finally, your vial is expired and you stand there with nothing, even though you still have something in the vial. So it's really tempting, but I agree with, with Andrew, we don't use it after the expiration date either. Andrew's idea to set those reagents aside for research is a really good one, because that's all you're able to do with them at that point. If you're running a clinical test with any component of the system, any buffer, any antibody that's past its expiration date, you run some serious regulatory jeopardy. I just drink them. And I'm trying to become the incredible IHC Hulk. There's a lot of protein in it, right? Yeah. It's it's better than muscle milk. (laughs) I think this is where we remind the listeners that PathBot is not medical advice. (laughs) So maybe we should talk about clone, talk about monoclonal versus polyclonal antibodies. Frank mentioned that I had pointed him to a a resource, which is uh, Nordic QC which is N-O-R-D-I-Q-C dot org, which is EQA. That stands for External Quality Assessment. That's a really important concept. It's an organization that does proficiency testing. And there's lots of analytes in pathology, but immunohistochemistry markers are certainly analytes. I mentioned that I'm chair of the CAP Immunohistochemistry Committee. So that's another EQA. And many countries, there's UK NEQAS, which is the EQA in the UK. There's a German EQA. There's an Australian or Australasian EQA. There's uh, the CIQC, which is the Canadian EQA. But the reason that I point Frank, to the Nordic QC is they have the, the best fleshed out granular data regarding the performance of not just individual clones in the PT, but also very specific granular information about assay. So the assay is not just the monoclonal antibody, it's the detection chemistry, it's the automated platform, It's the antigen retrieval. The other thing that Frank mentioned is 10 and 10. So 
I don't know if it was the GATA 3 or the PAX 8, but he was talking about, he put together his validation cohort of 10 expected positive and 10 expected negative. The reason that there's 10 and 10 is there's a CAP Center guideline, and I'm going to read the title of it. I pulled it up on my computer because this is such an important reference for laboratory directors. The CAP Center guideline is principles of analytic validation of immunohistochemical assays guideline from the College of American Pathologists, Pathology and Laboratory Quality Center. And it was published in archives in 2014. Another incredible reference is the ISOM. That's the International Society for Immunohistochemistry and molecular morphologies. That's I-S-I-M-M dot org. And when I, when I started this job almost 10 years ago, I don't know how I figured this stuff out, but now there are, there are lots of really, really good references out there. I have that CAP white paper on my iPad. And why do I have it? It's because Andrew emailed it to me when I asked him for help with this validation. Just to add on, there is now the 2020 rule, right, for the Terranostic markers, where you have to look for 20 positive and 20 negative. And that is, a, to my knowledge, a cap regulation. But I don't know if there is a paper about it or where exactly that comes from. So for the trainees, yeah. we refer to diagnostic markers, prognostic and predictive markers. And maybe let yep. me start by talking a little bit about the different terms. There's a specific lingo that we use in immunohistochemistry and how we apply different stains in our routine workflow. So some stains are referred to as diagnostic stains. And these are used mostly to determine lineage. When you have a poorly differentiated tumor, you can use them to say that the tumor is of melanocytic lineage or the tumor is of epithelial lineage. So these are mostly what's referred to as diagnostic stains. The other ones are, are prognostic stains. Let's say, um, and you know, there, there aren't that many of them, but one that comes to mind in, you know, in, to my mind in my hematopathology world is my favorite stain, P53. So it, it does correlate with the mutation, but it's usually a bad after. If I have a leukemia that's an overexpressor for P53, then I know that it's probably a bad actor. So you can say that that's an example of a prognostic marker. And then a predictive marker is a stain or an antigen, you know, an antibody that detects an antigen that predicts for response to a specific targeted therapy, such as HER2, right? So when you stain a tumor for HER2 and it's positive, you know that that tumor is going to respond to Herceptin or is a candidate, the patient is a candidate for Herceptin. So these are the, the different terminologies that we use, but I think it's, you know, it's good for, for our listeners to be aware of. Yeah, and there are markers that are used purely diagnostically, and there are markers that are used you know, only for prediction, and there are definitely markers that are used for both. And the, the rule is that if you are going to use a marker diagnostically and for prediction, that the validation should be at the level of a predictive marker, whatever the most intense application of the marker is. So the 10 and 10 is what became codified in the white paper. And that specifically is in reference to diagnostic assays. And so in that same white paper, it spells out that for predictive assays, the threshold is 20 expected positives and 20 expected negatives. And then the, there's also a 40 and 40, oh boy, 40 and 40, it kills me. And that specifically is in reference to ERPR HER2, and that's straight out of ASCO CAP. So before there was the, before there was the IHC validation white paper, there was ASCO CAP, and ASCO CAP decided for uh, LDTs for ERPR HER2 that the, that the validation cohort had to consist of 40 expected positives and 40 expected negatives for laboratory developed tests and 20 expected positives and 20 expected negatives for FDA approved assays. And unfortunately, 
I don't like FDA approved assays because they're expensive and I like things that are customizable. So my predictive marker, breast biomarkers are laboratory developed tests. And every time I have to tweak it, and I have a couple times since I, since I switched over from FDA approved assays to laboratory developed tests, I need to come up with these giant validation uh, cohorts. I use tissue microarrays, but that's, that's a luxury that I have that, that other people might not have access to. Frank and Anya, when you're working up a routine diagnostic stain, how do you go about picking the 10 positives and 10 negatives for your validation cohorts? So for me, for example, for GATA3, I mean, it's, it's mostly used for breast cancer and urothelial cancer, right? So I'm in uh, Epic Beaker. And so you can use some of the search capabilities in there to just search for diagnoses. And so I would just search for breast cancer and, and urothelial cancer from, the, from our cases that we've signed out and to find the positives. And I actually picked a few paragangliomas as well because I knew that GATA3 marks those also. And then, and then the negatives, I used kind of a sprinkling of other things. I don't know how people, if there's, any, if there's any rationale to how you go about that, but I just tried to pick tissue from, from different organ systems that would be expected to be negative for that marker and, and use those. And, then, and I also tried to use cell block material for both also. So we do it very similar. I mean, for instance, let's say BAP1 for uh, malignant mesothelioma mainly, but we know BAP1 can be lost also in carcinoma. So that makes it a little bit more difficult, but we just thought they have this 10 or even more probably mesotheliomas and adenocarcinomas of the lung. And then we go from there, we stain them all, we will evaluate them, and then we go by, do we have now 10 positive and 10 negatives? If we don't, we will expand the uh, number of cases that we go for. If we have to search for the cases, our deaf techs, they can search in PASTX. We have PASTX. And so they do a search for the diagnosis. And then they get the tissue blocks. And this is how we go about it. I, I would say very similar. And you know, Anya, the reason that I have all those, you know, that tower of, of cases that, that, I, that I showed you guys 20 minutes ago. The reason I have those is because I'm impatient. So every time I use a block for an IHC validation, I keep it, I keep it, I label it. I have them on boards that are labeled by organ system so that I can, and it's kind of fun, like very quickly assemble validation cohorts. Frank, you, you intuitively did it just right. Uh, a very important concept in terms of validation uh, is that of fit for purpose. And the idea is that the, you know, these immunohistochemical assays, they're going to be optimized and then subsequently validated for a specific purpose. Different tissues express these antigens at different levels. So an assay that's optimized for one purpose might not function as well for another purpose. And so it's important when you're constructing these validation cohorts to include as many cases of as many of the diagnostic classes that you're going to use the stain to, to make that diagnosis as possible. So for GATA3, it's, I would say it's inappropriate to have a validation cohort that only consists of breast cancer or that only consisted of urothelial cancer. And then in terms of the expected negatives, I, I, I think about what the differential is. So when I did GATA3, I did, I'm sure I did, I did breast and urothelial cancer. I might've had like one paraganglioma. 10 and 10 is the floor. That's the other thing. I, if it's a new stain, this is an opportunity for me to see how it behaves in tissues in our lab. So at our place, when we bring on, you know, I'm, I'm in the luxurious place of being the end user and not having to deal with any of the, the problems that you guys have to deal with. So I just benefit from the final product. But, you know, so when, like, let's say today we had an announcement that we finally got our NPM1 antibody. 
the, the stain is actually validated and it goes live and it's ready for use, every single pathologist in the department gets this announcement. It tells them that the antibody is live, how they can order it, you know, what the code in our system is to order it. And then what does it stain? You know, what, what other things can it possibly stain? You know, not, not in terms of NPM1, but, you know, other, other markers maybe. And then also, you know, what a good negative control for it is, what a good positive control for it is. So you really get an in-depth understanding of how to use the stain, even if you're not familiar with it or if you don't have much background information on it, which I think is really helpful. And I would suggest, you know, to any laboratory director to do a variation of this, you know, of, of this announcement. How do you do your controls? Are they on the same slide? You know, do you do different controls? You know, do you batch control? Who wants yes. to talk about controls? Yeah, I'd love to hear about control tissues. And I, Andrew, you showed your three-foot stack of blocks. I'd like to get additional tissue from large specimens and process it separately from the case. You know, keep, keep information with it so that we can keep track of it. And that's one way to build the repertoire. But I'm interested to hear what tricks other folks have for getting control tissue together. Tonsils. Tonsils. Tonsils are magic. Yeah. Tonsils are magic. We use on-slide controls and uh, we place the controls at the top of the slide. We put them, you know, right under the label. And But once in a blue moon, the control ends up at the bottom of the slide instead of the top. And it's just someone picking the ribbon up off the uh, water bath. Or you get a consult slide where the tissue is already near the label and the only place to put the control is at the bottom, yeah. On, how do you guys do the controls? Do you do on-site controls, batch controls? Big issue for us because we have about 250 to 300 stains and it's sheer impossible to get the on-site control for all of them. When we bring on a new stain, we decide whether this stain needs an on-site control. And the way we decided is, will we have an internal control, in, an expected internal control? So for instance, CD3, usually you do have a few T cells, so there shouldn't be an issue about positive controls. But then there are some stains which will be hardly ever positive. So like highly sensitive ALK, we always will put a positive control on the slide. Now for the other ones, we do batch controls. But I think uh, New York State does not like that idea of uh, batch control. So we really have to think very hard now how we will get around that issue or whether we have to do on-slide controls for all of them. But that will be a big, a big Is issue. Is this for the consults that you get from New York patients? Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, we will, we will treat all the consults the same because it's hard to sure. tease out which one is from New York and which one is not. So we really have to come up with something that will yeah. be uh, valuable for all of them. So I did my residency at Cedars, which was like a medium-sized pathology department. I think we had about, I don't know, 50,000 surgicals a year, I want to say. And so they used to do on-slide positive controls for every case. And that's what I was used to. And then when I came to MD Anderson, I, you know, I, I first came as a search path fellow and I saw that there were no controls on the slides. I was just shocked. But then I realized that with the volume that, you know, basically is handled at these large scale laboratories, it's virtually impossible to have on slide controls. So they would do batch controls. And, you know, even back when, when things weren't as digital, we used to digitize the, the control slides so that everybody could actually see the positive control at their convenience. And it was also reviewed by whoever was the, the designated person reviewing controls for that day for the entire lab. So that's basically how it worked at our place. But more recently, we've actually been doing on-slide controls for heme path cases. So we rolled out heme path, and that's one of the very few instances where we're not an underrepresented minority in the, in the division of pathology. But, you know, we're doing on-slide controls for, like, let's say even our CD3 and CD20 now for the heme path cases, which is actually very nice and convenient. Frank, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in how you do controls. We have on-slide controls as well, right up at the top of the slide. Unequivocally, the best control is an internal control. Yes. But unfortunately, as Anya mentioned with the example of ALK, 
or highly sensitive elk that, that many, in many instances, there is no internal control. And all I agree that the onslaught of tissue control is if you can bear it is, is the way to go. The onslaught positive control, if it's positive, it tells you that all the reagents that are critical to the development of the signal in the immunohistochemical reaction made it on that slide. And unfortunately, in a batch of immunohistochemistry, a slide can fail at any step. You know, application of the primary antibody or application of the secondary antibody. Sometimes there's a primary, a linker, and detection chemistry. So sometimes it's a three-step, three antibodies in, in sequence or the application of the DAB can fail. And the most famous explanation for the slide failing sort of randomly is a bubble in the, in the instrument. And it happens, it doesn't happen a lot. And without the on-slide control, there's no, there's no way of, of knowing. I have a great story about the importance of the, the internal control and the actual patient tissue. And this was before I, I, took on the reins of our, our IHC lab. But uh, when my predecessor was, was managing the lab, we had a situation where there was some construction going on above our laboratory. They were doing some, some demolition and remodeling, some patient rooms above the lab. And our IHC instrument got out of level without our noticing it. And the way we figured it out is we had cases where the reagent had made it onto the control material but had not gotten all the way across the slide and onto the patient material. And the internal controls in that patient material saved our bacon on some cases and allowed us to figure out what was going on there. When you, when you bring up a new instrument, one of the pieces of validating a new instrument is doing Vimentin, for example, in all the different <laughs> positions on the instrument to ensure that something like that isn't occurring. And when you move it, yeah. You have to do that type of, of uh, validation. So now we know what Vimentin is good for. <laughs> <laughs> there it is, we finally got to it. I'd love to hear whatever Anya brought up last, because you know, I'm always, I'm always <laughs> one step behind the mayo. That's not true. I gotta bring up next. Well, you know, we have quite a few things, or not quite a few, we have a few things in the pipeline which didn't really move further because of COVID-related uh, issues in the lab. But some of the things we did in the recent past was NTRAC. Great. And NTRAC as an IHC had a few challenges. I mean, we do know a few entities that will express NTRAC because of the NTRAC rearrangements that go along with the, with the expression, so like congenital infantile fibrosarcoma or the memory analog secretory carcinoma, but they are pretty rare, so we didn't have many of these specimens. We did title it on one of these memory analog secretory carcinomas, but then we had to test quite a few different carcinomas because that in the end would be the most useful NTRAC to find a few positive ones. And in addition to that, the expression, whether it's nuclear, membranous, or cytoplasmic, really depends on which rearrangement is in the tumor. This were some of the challenges there. We finally then brought it up, but I just checked with the lab. It's actually not very often ordered. And I have the feeling patients are treated with the targeted therapy for NTRAC without any IHC, but also probably without any gene rearrangement studies because we wanted to do a study and see the cases that are gene rearranged, we will do the IHC, but they don't even get many requests on that. So hopefully in the future, this will take off. The other challenge we had was in S100 because the clone was discontinued. And I alluded to that earlier, since this are one of the maintenance issues in the IHC lab that we encounter actually quite often. And with the S100, going back to Nordic QC, which we really like, in their S100, you actually have to see 
the follicular dendritic cells in the what we use for control in the tonsil. And that was a challenge for us to really get a good staining there without getting too much background. And um, the last stain we brought up probably in the couple of months ago was MTAP, which I love as a thoracic pathologist because we use it to distinguish between reactive mesocellular proliferation and malignant mesocellioma. What was that marker M again? MTAP, M-T-A-P. M-T-A-P. See, you got one that I don't have. Come on. Oh, M you should have it. It's, uh, it's actually a great stain together with BAP1. So this is the combination kind of we use it. And it's the same question. MTAP is a loss of stain. So you should see loss of protein expression. And this is seen in malignancies, specifically malignant mesoceliomas. The, the trick with the uh, loss of protein expression stains for us at least is that when we titer it on, for instance, tonsil, which will express these markers, we see a nice titer, but that not always works nicely with the actual sample with, for instance, the malignant mesocellioma, because you might see background in the cells that should show loss of expression. And therefore we had a few hiccups with that. We actually tested some of these diluents, the spring diluent, or the casein as a blocking diluent, and we were able to get rid of the background in the end. What's up next? Well, of course, COVID, right? We are <laughs> into COVID. Do you, have, do you have COVID IHC? Are you optimizing it in the lab? No, we don't have it yet. That's on our, on our wish and bucket list. We tried the IS, the, the in-situ hybridization, and although the technique by itself looks good, it's very difficult to interpret, I have to say. So we are still looking into that, and hopefully soon we can compare it with the IHC. So I have a nice COVID IHC assay. I haven't released it clinically. I'm still using it research use only, and maybe we could, we could collaborate. The reason I... That would be and, nice. And the, the reason that I haven't uh, brought it on board is uh, we fortunately have had very few uh, COVID deaths in Iowa so far. I certainly don't have 10 positive cases yep. and, and, you know, I don't want to release it clinically with, with w where I'm at, which is four, four, five, the 10 and 10, you can for rare antigens at the discretion of the laboratory director, you can approve a validation, but I don't want to be on the hook. I, I haven't, I haven't yet signed off approved a validation with fewer than 10 expected positives. Do you try to include decalcified tissue as well when you're doing your validations, Andrew? It, it depends if I think I'm going to use the thing in decalcified tissue. So that for the NTREC, for, ex for example, I, I tried to include some decalcified tissue. What about Michael? What's the last one or two or few that, that you guys brought up in the lab? So I haven't been able to bring anything up just yet here. Uh, only been here a few months. I'm still kind of evaluating what's on the menu and deciding what we need to expand. But I was really pleased that when I got here, we already had the pan track and a ducks antibody on the menu. I think those are really nice tools. But the pan track is really useful in kids because there's a lot of spindle cell things that are these mesenchymal neoplasms associated with the track fusions that can be treated with the specific therapy. So I think that's really handy to have to find those. And then the ducks for antibody, I think that's really helpful because it's sometimes difficult to identify the CIC ducks for fusions by molecular studies. I'm glad they had their ducks in a row. Oh, they did. They did. <laughs> but um, bum, bum. How, about, how about you, Dr. Lagavi? What's on your wish list? There are very few stains that are specific to my field that we don't already have. NPM1 was sort of like a sore spot for us. We've been wanting it for so long. But, you know, finally, Joe made it happen, all thanks to Joe Curry. So it's great. I'm very excited about it, excited to use it. You know, I'm sure it'll be quicker than the... So we actually have, not to brag or anything, but we have like a two-day turnaround time for our NPM1 mutation, which is amazing. So it's going to be around the same thing for, you know, for 
doing NGF as, as doing IHC. But I think it'll be great for like, if you're looking for one or two cells, you know, you should be able to find them too. So I'm excited about it. Here's so, the last five that I, that I brought up. I brought up LEF1. And I, I was going to joke that Dr. Lagavi knows that our friend Dennis O'Malley hates CD23. I wanted to use it for a CLLSLL diagnostics, but it has other diagnostic applications. B-Core, B-Core was long on my wish list. It took me at least a year to, to validate. One of Anya's favorite stains, I finally brought up SMARC-A4 or BRG1. That was another situation where I want a diagnostic marker to be able to make the diagnosis of small cell carcinoma of the ovary hypercalcemic type and to query all these rhabdoid carcinomas. H3K36M, which is a mutation-specific antibody, and that's a diagnostic marker for chondroblastoma. I also want to bring up H3G34W, which is another mutation-specific antibody, and that's in giant cell tumor of bone. And the last thing that I did is just, just maybe kind of a regular one. I did P120 catenin that uh, breast pathologists like to make the diagnosis of uh, lobular versus ductal uh, neoplasia. Maybe some of, some of the, uh, your other labs have had this one for, for some time. Sometimes e-cadherin loss is difficult to evaluate in the tissue. And the P120 catenin in lobular neoplasia shows uh, strong cytoplasmic staining and ductal neoplasia or just in non-neoplastic ductal epithelium shows crisp membranous staining. So Frank, what's on your wish list for your next stains? We would love to get SATB2. We would love to get STAT6, MUC4, TLE1. We would probably... Those stains, we would probably, SATB2 we'd use a lot more, but, but STAT6 and, and uh, MUC4 and TLE1, we'd probably use maybe a dozen, two, two dozen times a year. But, but those are stains where when you need them, you really wish you had them. You know, interestingly, Andrew, you said you brought up SMARC-A4. We've, in our little community pathology practice here, we've had three hypercalcemic type small cell carcinomas of the ovary in the last two years. All three confirmed by Dr. Roden's lab, we sent the SMARC A4 testing up to the Mayo and it worked beautifully. I got, a, I got a pitch for you, Frank. So TLE1 immunohistochemistry is dead. Oh, Andrew really? killed it. There's a, new, <laughs> there's a new better marker. My colleague, Jason Hornick, and, and I got to tag, up, tag along. I'm like his little brother. We recently published on... SS18, SSX fusion specific antibody. Save your 300 bucks on the uh, TLE1 and check out the SS18, SSX. I guess I'll tweet the reference. Excellent. You can put that paper at the end of your thread, the grand finale to your Twitter thread. What's a thread? Well, it's happened again. You've squandered another perfectly good hour listening to IHC Talk. Thank you so much. Keep in touch. Stay safe and stay well. Well, well I just wanted to say thank you for, for including me here as, as an IHC director in a smaller laboratory on the JV team to listen to the varsity team talk about the big game. It's been great. It's been really <laughs> educational. And uh and I'm excited about this. I'm, I'm optimizing, uh, as Andrew and I talked about uh, via Twitter, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my A1A3 stain in shape. I've got it staining hepatocytes now. I was really excited that you invited me and it was really fun for me. And I learned a lot too. So I always learn if, when we talk. And I always like this discussion at the CAP IHC meeting. I, I learned so much from the colleagues. Many of them are IHC directors or are not IHC directors, but end users. It is incredible. Thank you for that opportunity. Thanks. All right, All right thanks guys. a lot, everyone. Don't stand like my sister. Stand like my brothers. Don't stand like my siblings. And be nice to your IHC lab directors.
PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod.